Hello, and welcome to the Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Terry Raynard, and today I'm joined by Daniel Casali, Chief Investment Strategist, and Ben Seeger-Scott, Head of Multi-Asset Funds, for an update on global financial markets and the economy. Welcome, Ben and Daniel. We're recording the podcast from our respective homes and offices today on Thursday, the 12th of May, 2022. Before we begin, here's some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So Ben, the huge rise in bond yields since the start of the year has prompted some commentators to start talking about the end of the TINA trade. There is no alternative. Um, So with US Treasury yields now over 3%, do you think we're edging closer to a point where fixed income really does look like a viable alternative? Well, I think that's what's particularly interesting at the moment. Fixed income, of course, is a very broad market. One tends to think of the, the base asset class, government bonds, UK government bonds, gilts, US, US treasuries, but of course, it incorporates corporate credits, inflation-linked and inflation-protected securities, some high yields, some emerging markets. And I think there's always been a place for that in portfolios recently. But generally, most uh, investors, and particularly where we've been looking, have been avoiding the most exposure to to interest rates, so avoiding exposure to those core sovereign bonds when yields have been extremely low. They've been unattractive because when yields are low, they can really meaningfully only go one way, that's higher, because prices move inversely, it's been a place to avoid. But since then, if you look in the US, rates have gone from around half a percent and then a deer to 3%. That's a very big move. That means that some parts of the market is starting to look a little bit more attractive. Um, so yields now are positive in, in real terms. So if you look at where yields are now compared to where expected inflation is, expected that you can make a positive real return on these assets. It's also above what's generally considered the neutral rate, so potentially into the early stages of of a tight environment. And all that means that it might be a point that you could start to dip dip one's toe back in. Of course, they could go either way. We're not saying that this is as high as they're going to get. But I think when yields are extremely low, it makes a lot of sense to avoid the asset class entirely. Now they're starting to normalise, one might consider dipping their toe back in. And I mean, to what extent do you think this could create some vulnerability for stock markets? Well, I think there's there's certainly scope. And what this this move in uh, in interest rates and interest rate expectations, which what's based in baked into uh, government bonds, it adds a couple of headwinds. Is how I'd sort of describe it. So on the one hand, you have this increased, effectively frictional borrowing costs, both for markets and for for economies. So it does make some of the the, the cost of business that much higher when you have to to borrow or facilitate trading with marginally higher interest rates. So that sort of 
one headwind. And again, the same point that the, the, the Tina argument, now there is an asset class. So people do have the option to invest in something where you have a reasonable chance just of preserving your, your purchasing power. It probably won't have the, the same um, the, the same strong return characteristics as equities. But now there is an alternative that creates a, a secondary and an additional uh, headwind. But of course, a lot of these factors have already been been known about. There's still plenty of reasons to be positive on equity markets. You've got consumer confidence is still relatively high. Businesses generally aren't in in a huge amount of of stress. They tend to have a lot of cash on their balance sheets. Margins are still pretty robust. So there's lots of reasons to still be positive. But I think this change takes away some of the tailwinds that we had of low interest rates and, and money printing creates a couple of headwinds and it really brings us closer to a sort of more more finely balanced outlook and when you have these finely balanced outlooks normally that means volatility because sometimes you get markets flip-flopping between focusing on the positives and there's a bit of good news worrying about some of the negatives and that can overall increase volatility and i think that's a little bit of what we're, we're witnessing at the moment okay thanks ben um and daniel turning to you i mean one catalyst for bond yields to stop rising would be signs that inflation is peaking i mean how close do you think that moment is well cherry even if the inflation rate does peak from here uh, it does not necessarily follow that bond yields will stop rising uh, we saw yesterday that headline us cpi inflation is still elevated at 8.3% uh, in April. That means the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, is likely to continue to remove the accommodative monetary policy seen since the pandemic. The Fed has already raised interest rates to 1% and is expected to increase them further over the next year or so. In the very near term, it is really market expectations of how the Fed will raise interest rates to tackle inflation that will drive the trajectory of longer-term bond yields. One way to measure this is to monitor short maturity treasury bond yields as measured by the futures market. For instance, the US two-year treasury yield in one year's time is now up to 3.4% and is yet to peak. Given the strong relationship of the futures market with long-term bonds, there is still some upside to come from the current uh, 10-year yield of 3.1%. Of course, it's the trajectory of inflation from here that will have a strong influence on market expectations of Fed interest rates and 10-year Uh, Treasury yields. Looking further out for the rest of the year, uh, the consensus of economists expect US inflation to decelerate to under 6% by the fourth quarter of 2022. Provided inflation does indeed decelerate, that would give the Fed leeway to take its foot off the monetary break. And this could cap further upside in the 10 year yields. So let's turn our attention to equity markets. it, will, it won't have escaped anyone's notice that volatility has continued in recent weeks. Um, ben, has this volatility been concentrated in certain areas, you know, and has there been anywhere for investors to hide? Well, really, it, what we've seen over the last few weeks has been a continuation of the story we saw at, at the start of the year. Most sectors have, have struggled, uh, and that's continued in the last few weeks. In particular, the areas that did well previously, uh, IT, consumer discretionary, all suffering to a greater or or lesser extent, part of that driven by uh, interest rate sensitivity, part of it uh, around perhaps around some of the more more recent changes and changes we're seeing in uh, in consumer behaviour. Within that, there have been relative areas of outperformance, but bearing in mind this is outperforming in 
a broadly negative area anyway, so just falling a little bit less. And really, that's been in those more non-discretionary areas where businesses have the most ability to pass these costs straight through. And that tends to be in the energy and the consumer staples sectors. Those are the areas where you hear businesses, they will warn about prices coming through, but they tend to have their input price, pass a lot of that straight through to the prices you see on the shelves. And obviously, it's the prices you see in the shelves that really contribute to some of the CPI reports. So it's that pass-through nature that, that has the benefit. You don't have a choice. You can do a bit of substitution, but you don't really have a choice not to fill up your car, not to have goods shipped and delivered, not to buy some of the some of these basics. So those are the areas that have been uh, that have held up a little bit better. And where do you think we are with valuations? I mean, are we getting to a point where real value is emerging? Um, or, or do you think that, you know, it, this volatility is going to continue for a little while? Well, I, I think volatility broadly is is likely to continue just because some of these support mechanisms that have been in place have been withdrawn. And really, I'd sort of characterise it as, uh, as markets having to stand on their own two feet without some of the broad liquidity that we've seen before. In terms of valuation, it is very hard to say. Uh, one point to highlight, valuations broadly tend to fall when you have higher interest rates. Now, to an extent, markets have adapted to this and they're getting ahead of, of where interest rates currently are. So I wouldn't worry too much about what central banks say in terms of their hikes through the rest of the year, because markets are already pricing in a lot of that expectation that in one sense could, could, could allow you to, to see where valuations are now at a stabilised level based on expectations. But expectations can change and sometimes you get these these feedback loops. Um, the outlook is a little tougher for, for earnings, so maybe some of the lower valuations are justified from, from that point of view as well. A lot of it is going to be driven by fundamentals. If businesses continue to be able to operate meaningfully, if people, uh, consumers, aren't overly spooked by what's happening in, in markets, and if we do see inflation, if it does start to come down, maybe that will lead to a little bit uh, of uh, a reassertion uh, of some of the, the, the more positive animal spirits. Alternatively, you can get these feedback loops where poor stock market performance leads to businesses being a little bit more cagey. That in turn makes employees and consumers a little bit more worried. They stop spending, they start saving, and that can, can drive a feedback loop. So it is very hard to say, and I wouldn't call any particular parts of the market um, perhaps uh, overreacted uh, and perhaps value at a broad sense. What I would say is when you have markets like this, where the sell-offs have been quite broad and quite general, that's often an opportunity for stock-specific um, opportunities because you tend to get broad-scale sell-offs that can leave individual companies that have perhaps superior business models, better balance sheets. When you have this indiscriminate selling, it can be those individual stock picks that, that can potentially do better. But that's where being discerning is, is particularly key. Okay, thanks, Ben. And uh, Daniel, could you build on that a little bit? I mean, what are you seeing in terms of the corporate sector and earnings? I mean, does it still look in, in decent health? Well, I think the first thing is to recognise that the sell-off uh, in stocks that we've seen so far this year can largely be traced to it rising interest rates and its impact in lowering the valuations of these fast-growing tech-related uh, stocks, rather than a slowdown in company earnings. Uh, I mean, if we look on the MSCI All-Country World Index, that's the benchmark earnings per share growth, 
for 2022, it's actually accelerated to the latest week to 10%. It was 7% at the end of last year. So there has been an acceleration in earnings. Uh, and that's because uh, even though we have rising uh, wage and energy input costs, it's the net profit margin of listed companies that have risen to a record 11%. This is data that goes back to 2004. And it's what Ben's been saying, the rising uh, corporate pricing power is given that a significant boost. Indeed, sales growth has also accelerated. Remember, sales growth is measured in nominal type terms. That's because companies, uh, as I say, have been able to raise the prices of goods and services to end users. It is this combination of elevated profit margins and also rising top line sales growth that has boosted these EPS growth expectations. So, in short, the fundamental backdrop of company earnings still looks fairly okay. Thanks, Daniel. This this week, there's been a lot of kind of recession chat, but the outlook between different regions still looks quite stark. So, I mean, Europe looks particularly weak. The US seems to keep motoring. Um, Daniel, where, where do you see the strengths and weaknesses in the global economy? Well, so regional differences in growth can be expected both this year and next. I mean, if you look at the IMS recent April World Economic Outlook GDP projections, both the US and the UK are both expected to grow by around 3.7% this year, while the Eurozone expected to grow about a percentage point less at 2.7%. If you want to look further into 2023, all regions are still forecast to deliver lower growth. The US and Eurozone both projected to expand by 2.3%, while the UK will grow by just 1.2%. So that gives you a broad backdrop of where we should be going. The bottom line here is that the GDP in all of these three regions is expected to grow. But of course, there's going to be downside risks from geopolitical uncertainty, rising interest rates, and also a higher cost of living. Arguably, the US economy is probably more resilient due to the rising wealth impact. It's also got generous pandemic-related handouts from the government and relatively lower energy bills than in the UK and the Eurozone. UK growth does look weak as the government is now raising taxes and inflation is set to peak later in the year. And the Eurozone's economic weakness is its dependency on Russian energy and the uncertainty that brings to supply chains and particularly to German manufacturing. Okay. And the, um, I mean, China appears to have been a, a real weak spot as well. I mean, it's had a resurgence of, um, of the pandemic um, and that's prompted lockdowns in some of the major cities. I mean, what's, what's your view on the likely outcome for, well, the, for the Chinese economy? Well, let's take the starting point. In the National People's Congress in March, the government set a target for the economy to grow by around 5.5% this year. That's in real terms. Given the recent COVID outbreak and government lockdowns affecting cities that account for more than 20% of GDP, there is indeed concern that the government may struggle to deliver on its GDP growth objective this year. The irony is that should growth start to stutter, then Beijing is likely to step up policy easing. That's because politically, there's also reason to juice up the economy ahead of China's 20th National People's Congress in October. That's when President Xi is expected to be given an unprecedented third term. Certainly, Beijing appears to be pivoting away from the exceptional type policy in 2021 to stimulate the economy in 2022. And this followed uh, a Politburo meeting, and this comprised the most senior members of the Chinese Communist Party in December, where the official summary readout focused on supporting growth and marks a contrast to a year ago where both regulation and credit were tightened. Importantly, this stimulus is already apparent in China's so-called total social financing. This includes bank credit. The data up to March shows there's been a clear upswing developing in this form of credit. So on balance, the policy easing should at least prevent a, a downturn in growth becoming more entrenched in the economy. 
And Ben, can you see these problems in China affecting global stock markets? Well, I, th- I think it's, it's yet another bit of, uh, of negative news that's certainly hitting sentiment. But as, uh, as Daniel points out, this is potentially more a manufactured uh, event at the moment. The more you do now, certainly in terms of, of lockdowns and tightening, uh, the, the better potentially the outcome when you deploy stimulus later in the year. And they're really trying to, to manufacture this good news story uh, around the, the Congress later this year, as, as Daniel quite rightly points out. And because they do have a lot of this firepower, they're trying to manage it clearly. But if they can manage through that, obviously China is it is really important to the global supply chain. And the experience of the last few years has reminded us just how fragile those supply chains are. But in response to that, you know, global economies have been slowly adjusting to try and make supply chains more robust. And I think there is a difference between uh, a longer uh, or a more sustained downturn in China. If everyone takes what's happened in the last sort of few weeks and months uh, and just extrapolates that for the rest of the year, of course, that would be a big problem because of how interconnected uh, China is to the rest of the world. But if, in fact, you can't extrapolate, it's do more now, to do less, late, less later and manufacture that rebound. And ideally, that would then sort of smooth through in an economic sense that does come to pass, then I think a lot of these short-term concerns will be relegated just to the sentiment channel. They won't come through in the fundamentals. And actually, that is the potential for an uplift later in the year, if you believe that to be true. Thanks, Ben. Um, Let's uh, kind of turn to the thorny topic of value versus growth. Um, I mean, Ben, there's been some really gloomy news from some of the tech companies. I mean, Netflix has lost subscribers. We've uh, even sort of Amazon, which seems so Teflon-coated, has seen some disappointing results. Um, I mean, do you see the end of the, you know, the extraordinary dominance of these technology giants? Um, or, do, or is it just kind of a rebalancing, really, after after a long period of outperformance? Um, I, I think the reality is it's somewhere between the two. I think that if you look at the way markets operate, you don't tend to get one sector that just permanently dominates. That's not the way markets work. Markets attempt to um, weigh different perspectives and uh, and establish the, the most effective business models. And therefore, leadership changes. You get sentiment, sentiment sort of exacerbating some of those. In terms of technology, they have had a really, really good run. And I think towards the end, you can argue some of that run was justified, some of it was was just a little bit of momentum. And then towards the end, as we've, we've, we've said quite a lot over the last year or so, they've been looking really expensive coming into this. I mean, if you look at Netflix, there is the argument we've seen some, some of the stock-specific challenges we've seen in this sector. If you haven't got a Netflix subscription in the last two years, you're unlikely, particularly the sun's coming out, to, to go out uh, and get one now. And obviously, there's a lot more competition in this area. And I think that's had the, the sort of negative sentiment impact as well. Um, but I wouldn't write off IT and technology and communication services entirely. I, I think it's a mistake to say this sector is amazing. It's going to be dominant and the leader forever. And then when it starts to fall, to immediately turn and say it, it's not all that actually. It's uh, you know a, a terrible sector. I think the reality is these tend to ebb and flow. And if you do have these, these extended runs given very specific economic conditions at the time, it's only natural through time that they will tend to, to mean revert to an extent. And at some point, again, they may end up 
being oversold. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say that these are these are down and out, but I also wouldn't say that the normal state of affairs is for these to be permanently dominant. I think a sort of more more middle track, uh, sensible balance is probably how I'd how I'd describe it more. Okay, thanks, Ben. And then finally, I wonder if we could just wrap up with a with kind of a temperature check on the outlook for the global economy and for stock markets. Uh, ben, perhaps you could kick us off with the prospects for stock markets. I, uh, you know, I, I still think stock markets have the, the potential to rally from here. There's a lot of bad news that's been coming out. A lot of bits that that have been foreseen, but the compressed nature of uh, what's happening, for example, with interest rates, some negative news. We talked about China, some of the concerns coming out of uh, the war in Ukraine have hit markets and caused that valuation to move lower. People are starting to think about recession in the longer term, but it's worth remembering markets can continue to do well, even if there is a recession on the horizon. So getting out uh, or reducing exposure too early can also be an error. I think what's going to be more important, though, is rather than just looking at the aggregate level, looking at some of the potential change in the drivers, the environment where you have very low interest rates and the sort of environments that favour uh, the sort of aggressive growth stocks may not be the ones that work in, in a higher interest rate and rising interest rate environment. So I think there is still potential, but you've got to look a lot more at the mix that you have within your equity exposure, looking in particular at your styles and at your sectors. And again, it could be a really important environment for uh, being discerning in your stock selection. So this indiscriminate sell-off can create pockets of, of relative uh, attraction. Great. OK. And Daniel, final word to you. I mean, how optimistic are you feeling about the global economy over the next six months? Well, let's be clear. I mean, the global growth is slowing. Uh, and just turning back to the World Economic Outlook from the IMF uh, in its 2022 global rural GDP growth forecast, it did downgrade it to uh, 3.6% from 4.4% previously. Uh, but that was largely due to the supply shock spillovers from the war in Ukraine and, of course, the indirect effect of financial sanctions against Russia on the uh, Eurozone and the rest of the world. Uh, the growth outlook also looks a bit vulnerable to China lockdowns in major cities as the authorities try to stop the spread of the virus, um, as we already mentioned. Nevertheless, saying that, the global economy still has some momentum behind it. I mean, households and businesses are in decent financial shape to drive growth. And we've got improving labour markets and they're helping to lift consumption. And the supply chain disruption and low inventories that we've seen should eventually boost factory output and also encourage businesses to raise their capital investment. So nonetheless, though, there are still these lingering risks to global growth. So I'll just give you three of them here. One is uh, if GDP growth disappoints on the downside, that could happen because higher inflation risks so-called uh, consumer demand destruction uh, and also fa fail uh, firms fail to restock significantly. The second one is that the West introduces energy sanctions against Russia, and that could significantly raise oil and gas prices and create considerable market uncertainty to drive down growth. And thirdly, uh, economic overheating leads to higher rates that brings forward the contraction phase of the business cycle. But as Ben mentioned, that can take some while. And just to give you an example, Deutsche Bank, they found that out of the 13 different Fed hiking periods since 1955, it takes an average of three and a half years before higher rates tip the US economy into a recession. So that's some food for thought. Great. OK, thank you, Ben and Daniel, for those 
insights and comments today, food for thought indeed. Um, as I mentioned during the April investment podcast, we've merged our businesses into one. Tilney and Smith and Williamson will soon become Evelyn Partners. We aim to draw on the new firm's combined expertise to offer the best of everything we do, including investment commentary and insights. This means we'll be launching a new Evelyn Partners investment podcast featuring Daniel Ben and others focusing on stock markets, the world economy and anything else that's informing the way we run portfolios. So please watch the space for more details. And if you'd like to find out more about our rebrand to Evelyn Partners, please visit evelyn.com. Until next time.